Welcome back to Lakes, Woods, and Irons with Chris Foley, 1380 KLIZ, the fan. Streaming at lakeswoodsandirons.com, Facebook as well. You can get the show on uh, Facebook. That'll be posted. And also uh, wherever you get your podcasts, maybe Podcast One. Uh, so it's out there and uh, everywhere at Lakes, Woods, and Irons. Chris, uh, we were just saying as we went on, it's it's hard to believe it's already week three of the show. Yeah, it, uh, you kind of lose track of time during this uh, shelter in place, and we're already in week three, and uh, no golf yet, but uh, I'm hopeful it's on the on the horizon. Yeah, you and I kind of have to stay in fairly close contact because I'm never sure what day of the week it is anymore <laughs> with this stay-at-home deal. No, that's exactly right. It's uh, <laughs> it's amazing. It's it, it seems like we we've been shelter in place for about a year. <laughs> yet the, yet the time's gone pretty quick, really. Right after Easter, I said to Dan on the, on the um, Loon Morning Show, the you know this is the first Monday I've known it was Monday for quite a long time. <laughs> Yeah, that's the truth. You really, you really lose track of time, for sure. <laughs> we did get a ruling from the uh, governor since last we spoke, and uh, uh, courses did not reopen, but we got a little good news with superintendents and, uh, and maintenance going back to work. Yeah, if, if, thankfully they, they have allowed, they've made golf course maintenance workers essential employees, which is, is huge. Um, in that you know for us in the brainer lakes area it's it's not as big a deal because we're not getting any any growth yet and that type of thing but the things are definitely starting to pop i'm seeing some buds on the trees and things like that but you know for the for the twin cities where they've had a little more warm weather things are starting to grow and if uh, you really can't let uh let it go too long without it doing some some damage and having a hard time getting it back to where you need it to be so so that, that's that's good news. And we'll have Scott Hoffman on with us in the fourth segment of the show, and he'll talk about that, kind of a, a legendary superintendent. So it'll be fun to have Scott and get his point of view on that. Absolutely. Also have uh, Ron Reed on with us this week. Ron was the, uh, uh, the starter at the U.S. Open for uh, many, many years. He's the author of uh, Starting the U.S. Open from Shinnecock Hills to Pebble Beach. And uh, I've had some conversations in, in trying to hook up with Ron and, that's going to be a good segment. Should be fun. He's got a lot of great memories. Kind of reminded me of uh, TV this week, Chris. Uh, not always fun to watch old old sports on TV, but it's always fun to watch old masters on TV. And that was on kind of all last week and on Sunday. And uh, I was just waiting to find, you know, everybody has their favorite ones. So you just hope for the replay there and uh, kind of sit and relive some of the some of the great memories from Augusta. And that was easy to do this last weekend. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm never a, I never enjoy much uh, watching a sporting event or especially a golf tournament when you know what the outcome is. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I'll tell you, I, I enjoy. I really enjoyed Sunday seeing Tiger's final round uh, last year. I yeah, I was in Augusta, and the the weather was bad, so I didn't get to see a lot of it because I was uh, I was trying to make sure our clients were all. Uh, taken care of and um, so it was really fun getting to go back and watch that one especially when I hadn't seen a lot of the the uh, the play from that day so it was pretty exciting one of my favorites I watched was 2006 that was when Phil and and Freddie Couples were paired coming in and the whole bunch I think the top five players in the world were on the leaderboard after day two and in, 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 in the top maybe eight positions and uh, Phil and Freddie had so much fun that day. 
you never see two guys more relaxed on a golf course than those two guys when they're playing together, even though it's for all the marbles on Sunday and at the Masters. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's why Freddie is the king of cool, you know. He, uh, uh, he, he always looks so comfortable out there. Just, it looks like he's on a, uh, just taking a nice walk on a Sunday afternoon and, uh, you know, Phil's obviously he, that he hit some great shots down the stretch in that tournament. It was it, uh, definitely one of the more memorable ones. Yeah, really, really great. And yeah, Freddie, he's, uh, he's just fun to watch. And at that time he was 46. They kept comparing him to Nicholas cause he might win the tournament. Nicholas won, of course, at 46, but, uh, he was leading the tournament in driving distance the whole week at, yeah. at 46 yeah. years old. Yeah, you know, it's Freddie, it, it's amazing. You you wonder what his career could have been if he had a healthy back. Yeah. And, um, you know, it just, uh, he, he never could practice as much as he would have liked to. And, uh, you know, he had so many tournaments where he, he, he just was in pain and couldn't, uh, couldn't perform up to his potential. So, um, but he always seems to, seems to come to the, uh, uh, the top at the Masters. Yeah, it seems it's still his favorite, even though he's uh, quite a bit older now. But uh, yes. yeah, that was. <laughs> and if his back, and by his own admission, if he didn't watch about eight hours of TV every day of his life. <laughs> That's right. It, uh, Fred did not have a hard time taking time off. <laughs> couple great guests for you as well. Ron Reed, the starter at the U.S. Open for 23 years and author of a great book. He'll join us. And Scott Hoffman, the uh, legendary uh, course designer and uh, superintendent with some uh, things to look for in Minnesota with the uh, superintendent and their staffs going back to work. You're listening to Lakes, Woods, and Irons on 1380 KLIZ. Welcome back to Lakes, Woods, and Irons with Chris Foley, Colin McDonald with you. 1380 KLIZ, the fan. And uh, podcasting now at uh, Lakes, Woods, and Irons. Look for it there. We're at Podcast One or really, really wherever you find your podcasts. Also on our Facebook page, you can listen to the show and at lakeswoodsandirons.com. A special guest with us that uh, happened to just be fortunate enough to get a hold of, uh, Ron Reed. He's the author of Starting the U.S. Open from Shinnecock Hills to Pebble Beach. And uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, uh, Ron, appreciate you taking the time and joining us today. Well, you're kind to uh, to reach out, and I'd rather be hunkered here than. Uh, no, I actually, I'd rather be bunkered at nearby Pebble Beach than be hunkered here. But uh, I'm happy to be uh, be around and be with you, Chris. When we were talking yesterday, Ron and I, he was uh, taking a walk at Pebble Beach, so that's not all bad. That's not all bad. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a pleasure and. Uh, it's not very crowded. The other day, I had a I had an interesting uh, experience. I ran into Jim Nance, who lives nearby, and he uh, he suggested he, he was really excited, and he said, "Gee, I hope you watch um, the rewind of the Masters over the weekend." And and I did, and it was sensational. I think that's the way, you know, the TV audiences are going to be huge once um, once golf pro golf gets back on TV. I think so too. Uh, the, the the book uh, starting the U.S. Open, Ron. Just, uh, I mean, we're talking about literally starting the U.S. Open. So tell our listeners who might not know uh, what that means. Well, uh, first, you know, I, I start the book telling how a, a kid from suburban Chicago, Lagrange, uh, certainly not privileged, sneaking on his local golf courses 
And uh, somehow over the years, after uh, the U.S. Army here in Monterey, California, uh, somehow uh, ended up working in the amateur side of golf, first at the Northern Cal Golf Association, and then uh, for 20, excuse me, 32 years at the USGA. And along the way in 1986, uh, David Fay was ill. He was the starter. And uh, they tapped me. Frank Hannigan said, uh, as he, he gave me a microphone, and he said, welcome to showbiz. <laughs> and in 1986 at Shinnecock, I became the starter of the U.S. Open and uh, hung in there uh, 23 of the next years, ending that assignment in 2010 here at Pebble Beach. Boy, what a, it, what a great run, yeah. Not, not a better seat in... Uh, in tournament golf than on the on that first tee well i never took it for granted every year i'd go and i'd look at the assignment sheet and there it said ron reed starter first tee and um you know it was such a privilege and but beyond that um i got to know them a lot of most, the greatest players of our time uh, off the golf course as well so uh i along the way uh, people said you ought to write about it so i did and it was a lot of fun, and I had some help. Uh, Rich Gazinski, formerly at the USGA, helped uh, edit. And uh, I think we came up with a, a, a book that uh, is entertaining and insightful. Yeah, I agree, Ron. I think we'll just uh, I'll just sample a couple of the endorsements in the front of the book so our listeners have an idea that this might be a book you want to go get. Few have experienced the cauldron of every golfer's experiences on the first tee of the U.S. Open. My friend Ron Reed had a front row seat there for 23 years to witness the hardest shot in golf, the first one. He is, in fact, the man who was starting the U.S. Open. That's your friend Jim Nance, which is uh, very nice. Uh, uh, Jack and Barbara have some nice things to say in the endorsements and oh, a whole bunch of people. Uh, Roger Maltby, uh, you've been longtime friends with Roger Maltby. Oh, there's all kinds of great names there. Chris, you guys also have a kind of a Iowa connection, you and Ron, that you might not know about. Ron, you're a Drake graduate, is that correct? I went to I went to Drake University, and uh, it was during my uh, before my sophomore year. I I uh, was working at the Wakanda Club there in Des Moines, and they were having the U.S. Amateur, and so I got to I got to see P.J. Boatwright and Joe Dye and Frank Hannigan and the leadership of uh, the USGA, and you know that's what kind of tweaked my interest into getting into the administrative side of the game of golf so uh, that's where it all began 1963 u.s amateur oh that's neat i, I was an assistant at wakanda club in 1990 1990 to 1993 one of my favorite places jack, in the world jack webb jack had retired in about 85 or 86 but no jack well uh mr neneman you probably knew mr neneman the gm oh yeah <laughs> the yeah. club manager, he, long time. He had to put up with me. <laughs> no, that was yeah. great years. Yeah, you know that's an interesting U.S. Amateur. Dean Beeman won, which went on became the commissioner of the PGA Tour. Uh, the assistants at that time were Jack Klecky, and but the two assistants went on to become the co-professionals at uh, Augusta National, and um, a few other noteworthy things ha happened in that. Uh, that U.S. Amateur. Look, can I share a, a side story uh, to the book? 
Yeah. Um, years ago, David Fay called me. He says, you better explain yourself. I said, what did I do now? He says, well, a, a fellow by the name of Vince Bradley somehow talked his way up Magnolia Lane using your name. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I says, do you know Vince Bradley? I said, yeah, he's a golf coach, high school golf coach, nice guy. He said, well, he told him he worked for me. Well, I was flattered that someone would think that I had that sort of influence. But uh, anyway, he got all the way to the clubhouse. So I ended up writing letters of apology. And along the way, <laughs> I connected with the golf pros who guess where they came from. Wakanda Club. That's right. And and uh, so I ended up with um, maybe some friends there at Augusta National. Ron, the book has all kinds of uh, great, great chapters. We'll just kind of walk down maybe some of the things we talked about. You had uh, some funny moments. I know uh, we talked a little bit about yesterday about uh, uh, Jumbo Osaki. You had to talk him into playing. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jumbo... Uh, he was first off and at 6.30 in the morning uh, there at Pine, Pinehurst in 99, and I introduced him from Narita, Japan, and in, uh, in his English, he said, I know play. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> and um, I turned to Tony Zerpoli, the, uh, the referee, and I said, what do I do now? He says, reintroduce him. And at the point, it was an early start. Normally, we started at 7 o'clock, but... At 6.30, Jumbo thought it was too dark to play. Well, finally, uh, Brandel Shambly, who was playing with him, told me later that somehow I cajoled him to hit it. And uh, I remember he hit it off into darkness, and about 300 cameras flash, flashes went off from all of the uh, uh, photographers in Japan that were following their, their legend. So, uh, yeah, somehow I convinced him to play. <laughs> Then uh, let's see, Jim Thorpe. We had a had a you and Jim oh, Thorpe, Thorpe had a moment. Jim was a bomber, wasn't he? Jim was a bomber. I remember practice round in '84 at Wingfoot when he got on the eighth hole. It's you know today drivable by a lot of the players. It wasn't then, but he he took his one iron and he he ripped the grip off. So uh, he had his hands only on the tape and iron, and he knocked it on the front of the green with a one iron. But uh, Jim was a great guy, and I, I call him a gentle giant, but um, I had an incident at Baltusrol where he got over the ball. He hadn't even hit it yet, and I got confused, and I didn't want him to be penalized in, the, in this crazy situation, and all of a sudden I interrupted him. I said, Jim, is this a provisional ball? And he looked up, and he smiled. He says, man. I ain't even hit it yet, and you guys are trying to penalize. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a big guy, you know. He played football, and I I ran up to him, and he smashed his drive down the middle. I tried to give him a big hug, and we laughed later. And uh, <laughs> he, thank God he was forgiving. No, Jim was a great guy. And uh, Ian Wisdom, you had uh, had a funny uh, story about Ian as well. Well, I. I used to handle player registration, and I would ask them as they came in, you know, where do you live? And uh, he said he he was from Oswa Street, England. So for three days, I introduced him from Oswa Street, England. Well, on day four, you know, worldwide television, <laughs> um, I introduced him from Oswa Street, and he turned around. He didn't have a speaking part, but he says, I'm from Wales. Well, <laughs> I... I corrected myself. I'd made a lot of mistakes over the years, and I said the word correction, Wales. Well, now I was flustered, and I continued on with other introductions, and I got to 
And here's what I said. And the special observer is Joe Carr, captain of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews from Dublin, England. (laughs) And there was a murmur in the crowd, and I looked over, and Joe was laughing, and I realized my mistake. And I said, correction, Ireland. Well, the next to speak was um, uh, the famous uh, announcer, um, Peter Alice. And Peter... (laughs) Peter came up with this line. He says, wars have started over less. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'll share the post story to that. I was, uh, you know, for two days I was in a funk over, you know, blowing the final introduction. And I was in a restaurant all alone, and I ordered a glass of wine. And the waiter, I sensed, I, I said, where are you from? He says, I'm from London, England. I said, really? Tell me where is Oswestry? And he said, I don't know, but I was watching the U.S. Open. And he pointed at me. He pointed at me and he said, you're the guy. You're the guy. And it was that one moment when I, I could laugh at myself and um, the, uh, you know, the feelings I had went away. I, I could never make another mistake when I didn't laugh about, about uh, what I was doing. I suppose with the seriousness of some guys and the looseness of others, there's a uh, some guys a mispronunciation might bother, and other guys probably would laugh it off. I would say uh, once, um, and and I like Colin Montgomery a lot. I, I always thought he was a good guy. And after I introduced him once, he came over and he said, "It's not Colin." <laughs> I said, "Okay, I'll uh, I'll make sure I don't say that again." Um, I I bit the bullet, so to speak, and and I was careful, but. Um, I'm, I'm quite sensitive to that, uh, Ron. That's my. <laughs> I I had a uh, a junior high, uh, not a high, no a high school phys ed teacher who would always purposely call me Colin, just so a few people would chuckle during introductions. Well, I liked him a lot, and um, <laughs> a quick quick Colin story. You know, he he could and probably should have won the U.S. Open in '94 when uh, when Ernie Els did there at Oakmont. And it was the afterwards. It was I, I learned what the U.S. Open meant to a player of his caliber. He he lost it uh, privately in the when he called his wife back in Scotland. And um, I learned you know the emotional side of of what the U.S. Open meant to uh, to a great player like that. Sure. Yeah. Wow. So many heartbreaking and uh, stories about the guys who come second or play themselves out of it late in the day or whatever the case might be run uh, 1994 was arnold palmer's last u.s open and it was played at oakmont country club so kind of in his backyard of where he grew up tell, tell us about that u.s open what your memories are then well it's in the book um he um ernie well he was playing with john mahaffey and rocco mediate and they were there early because on thursday at the starting time, and Arnie wasn't, and I, we, I knew where he was because I could hear the buzz through the the thousands that were gathered. And uh, finally, I dispatched, uh, which I never did uh, normally, to send security to get him there. And they found him. They brought him in, and he popped through the crowd seconds before his starting time. And he all he had was a putter, caddy, no golf bag. So I introduced uh, Rocco and. Rocco teed at one place, and then he picked it up, and he moved the tee, and I began to sense something was going on. They were stalling, and finally he hit it, and then John did the same thing. Arnie was still standing there with just a putter. 
all of a sudden, here comes Caddy pops through the crowd. I breathe a sigh of relief. I'm looking at two trees that were there at the time, and I'm thinking, man, if I penalize Arnold Palmer. They started, I introduced him, and the crowd went crazy, and all of a sudden he got over the ball. He wasn't comfortable. He didn't know how many clubs he had. So he turned around, and he, everybody was counting clubs, and nobody was getting 14 clubs. And Finally, he felt comfortable, and he hit it down the fairway. Well, off he went several minutes late possibly could have been penalized in his last U.S. Open. Well, Friday was the final day, and he showed up early. And I took a, one of the decisions, 6-3-3, and I taped it to my table and highlighted that A, B, and C players must be all there at the same time, present and ready to play. I highlighted it. And he was in good humor. He was always in good humor. And I took him over, and I pointed that out to him. And he looked at me only as Arnold Palmer could, and he says, I was ready to play. He says, I had a putter. I'd hit it from here to there. <laughs> and um, as I wrote the book, that was the only only thing I ever wrote down on the pairing sheet and looked back later and, and used in writing the book. Your title of that chapter, uh, Arnold Palmer, The Goodness of the Man, That uh, that's a great uh, title for a chapter, Ron. Well, I, I, uh, there are a number of stories that elaborate, and I won't, I won't uh, share them all now, but he, he was an extraordinary person, and uh, I traveled from Scotland, uh, circuitously, flew home to Monterey, changed my underwear, flew back to La Trobe, <laughs> having, having spent uh, a day and a half to get there, and went to his memorial, and it was something I'll never forget. I'll bet, yeah. And another uh, great you we talked a little bit about yesterday, and the title of that chapter is great too. Is Jack Nicholas the softer side? Well, I've, I've seen it. I've cried with him twice on the first tee. The, the the last time was his last U.S. Open, and Roger Maltby, who used to cue me to start, you know, the television introduction, came to me and he said, uh, "Wouldn't it be nice if we did something special? Because it, you know, Jack's taking." Uh, uh, the place of Payne Stewart, who was sadly no longer with us. And uh, I said, hey, you know, I'd like to do that, but the decision was made by people higher up than I. We've, we've honored Payne Stewart, so uh, thank you for your suggestion, but no thanks. And Jack came to the tee, and you know what he said to me? He says, uh, wouldn't it be nice if we honored Payne Stewart? Well, I knew that I knew that he and Roger had chatted, and I said, Jack, look, it's over. But wait a minute. When you're introduced, you're on stage. You can do anything you want. Just don't tell anybody. Don't share <laughs> that you and I made a deal. So Jack got up there, and, and uh, I introduced him from North Palm Beach. And guess what he said? He said, I just want to take a moment to remember our national champion. And I don't think there was a dry eye near the first tee at Pebble Beach, and uh, he hit it down the middle. And the next day he came up, this is his final round, and he looks at me and he, with a smile, he says, well, did I get you in trouble? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I told the press, you know, he broke the deal. Well, we both laughed, and um, but it was a very touching moment and the soft side of Jack Nicklaus. Yeah, yeah. Jack has shed a tear or two that we've all got to see on television, and uh, uh, Jack and Arnold just... Two of the two great men of golf. And another one, uh, Tom Watson. I know uh, you've had some uh, experience with Tom as well. 
uh, Tom, uh, you know, great, great guy. Uh, one of the most memorable was in, the, uh, I believe, 2003 at Olympia Fields. And for 21 years, I had had the flag from 1982 when he chipped in to uh, to take uh, Jack Nicklaus's fifth U.S. Open away from him. Right. I had the flag, and I threw it in a box and forgot about it. Well, I took it to Chicago with me. And I was going to have him sign it, and I would keep the flag. Well, this is this was Tom's last open, and and of course the world knew that Bruce Edwards was suffering from ALS, and so I sought Tom on Sunday morning to to say to him, "Look, I'd like to give the flag to Bruce. Is that okay?" And I never could find him. So up the hill on Sunday. By the way, Tom is he's got a chance to win in his last U.S. Open, and. Uh, <laughs> Bruce came up the hill, and he wasn't doing so well. You could tell the disease had set in, and I said to him, uh, here, I'd like you to have this flag. And he looked at me, and he said, what is this? I said, this is the flag from 21 years ago. And he began to cry, and so did I. <laughs> and uh, finally, Tom came up, and he looked at the two of us. He said, what's going on here? And I told him I'd given Bruce the flag. And I said, did I do the right thing? And Tom said, you did the right thing. So um, that flag today, uh, I'm happy to say it was auctioned, and Tom got it. Tom bought it, and it sits in his office there in Kansas City. So I couldn't be happier. That's an incredible story. You're listening to our interview with Ron Reed, author of Starting the U.S. Open from Shinnecock Hills to Pebble Beach. You can find Ron's book at ronreed.com, ronreed.com, also available on Amazon. You're listening to Lakes, Woods, and Irons on 1380 KLIZ. Welcome back to Lakes, Woods, and Irons with Chris Foley, Colin McDonald with you, 1380 KLIZ. Find the show at uh, Podcast One or maybe wherever your podcasts are under Lakes, Woods, and Irons. Facebook page as well. All those thanks to our sponsor, Mills GM, the home of affordable luxury, the 2020 Buicks. Chris, special guest we've had with us before. I'll let you do the introductions. Yeah, recently retired, but longtime Madden's golf course superintendent. And uh, designer of the great golf course, the classic, Scott Hoffman. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here again. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. T- tell us what uh, what you've been doing in retirement for the past year. Other than spending a little more time with my grandkids, and I go up to my happy place. I've got some few acres of woods behind my house that I, I like to spend some time in. Um, I've started a business Uh Kind of the two things I was most passionate about uh, when I was working was designing golf courses, and then the other was uh, creating sustainable maintenance programs. So that's uh, what I'm doing now. That's fantastic. And you, you have are your clients mainly in Minnesota or all over the country? Or yeah, mainly locally. Um, I've, I've just been kind of visiting with a number of the, the golf courses in our area i haven't decided yet if i want to make the trek down to the cities and and look at that market or not uh i generally don't like going that direction in the summertime. <laughs> right <laughs> why would you leave paradise <laughs> yeah <laughs> well scott i wanted to have you on the show and i know you're you're a little bit out of the loop but how, how is the winner on the golf courses and how are they coming out and with uh, not not being able to play golf here? What what do you what do you foresee as uh, things going on? Yeah, we had a great winter. What I can see on the golf courses, uh, 
had a good recipe with lots of snow cover early and no midwinter thaws and and uh, that's always a good thing so the guys i've talked to are are uh, chomping at the bit and it's always good to hit the ground running in the spring and not have that winter damage to worry about so the golf courses are are really in great shape and just ready and, and waiting for the the signal from the governor to get going again yeah we got some yeah. kind of good news scott from the governor with the uh superintendents and their staffs getting out there now uh, obviously you've been at this forever so from your point of view uh, uh, that's that's got to be a big help because you, you you guys have to be working on the courses yeah we do um, there, there's just a ton of work to do in the spring to get things ready and uh, you just can't wait until the day before you open and say we're ready so um, there's that and, and some golf courses I are taking advantage of being closed for a while and and doing some construction projects and and things like that. I'm working with one golf course that I did a master plan for, and they decided to go ahead and get as much done as they can this April. So they're moving moving ahead with some of that. So um, things are are happening. Scott, what what are some of those things that you have to do to get opened up? You know, if you, from a golfer's perspective, you, they, they think you just put the pins in and mow the greens and you're ready to go, but what are <laughs> yeah. some of those things? Yeah. Well, every golf course approaches it a little differently, um, but just imagine getting your your half acre or acre long cleaned up and ready, then multiply that times, you know, 150 or 200, and that's basically what we're doing on the golf course. There's just a lot of cleanup in the, in the spring. And then uh, some of us, including the way we did it at Madden's, we would do uh, some of our needle tining and top dressing on green so we could get that process done uh, during somewhat of the off season before we have play and golfers out there. So once we open, we, we didn't have to deal with that process very much. But uh, getting the irrigation up and running again and all those uh, cleanup type jobs, uh, typically that's the time of year you're revetting the bunkers and refreshing the sand up. And, and uh, it's just a good time to get a lot of projects done when, when you don't have some play and some golfers sure. that you're competing with. Oh, that's great. Yeah, you know, I read uh, recently that in Australia, you know, they're obviously going through the same thing we are, and they they were not allowing golf course maintenance, and they said if it went on more than a, about another month, it was going to have a $5 billion impact on their golf industry, that it would take that much to get it back. Well, you've got to consider the golf course itself is the biggest asset that any golf course has. And golf itself in Minnesota is a $2.3 billion economic deal. So it's not a small thing. And there's, you know, 25,000 people or so that work in the business and 600,000 people that love to play golf. Um, So, yeah, it's just not something that you can ignore. Um, Once the grass starts growing and even to prepare before it starts growing is is a lot of work and and it takes a lot of time. when you think about it, you might have eight or ten or twelve workers spread out over 160 acres. So, um, you know, with with some good management, you can certainly handle the social distancing aspect of that, and and that's what the guys are doing. That's great, Scott. You talked a little earlier about 
part of your your new business is with sustainability. Tell us more about that. Yeah, you know, of course, we've been more and more under the environmental microscope in the last number of years, and and most every golf course I know of are good stewards of the land, uh, and I, I felt that way at Madden's also, but there was something that told me I could do better. Um, I just didn't feel right about the amount of chemicals and fertilizer we were putting down and, and uh, the amount of water. So a dozen or so years ago, um, we started a program that, was adopted from a company called Greenway out in California. We had them come in and consult with us for a year. And um, what we ended up doing, most golf courses in Minnesota, I'm sure golfers are aware of a grass called Poa Annua, called Poa for short. And it competes with bent grass, and it's it's almost like a state grass in Minnesota because the environment and the climate are really conducive to it. But the problem with Poa is it's it has very high requirements as far as water, nutrients, management practices. It's not very winter hardy and it's not very summer hardy if you get a real hot, dry summer. So we had a lot of POA on our our old course. The older the golf course, the more POA you have. So the east course probably was 50-60% POA on the greens and the west was probably 30 and the classic was just starting to get 5 or 10%. And we just felt we had to do something. So we went on the program, and, and typically golf course superintendents have been kind of pressured to um, create something pretty. You know, golfers want green, and green doesn't always correlate with a good playing surface. And most of the universities that turns up turf students were land-grant colleges, and all their work was done with with agriculture and farm crops. So it was more about producing a crop than it was creating a surface. And that's kind of what we learned with this program that we went on, is uh, we didn't want to produce a crop. We weren't interested in yield. We, We were interested in something that created a good surface to play on. And what we found was the bent grass, if you think about it, where it started was in the lynx land of Scotland on the sandy dunes where nothing else would grow. Uh, but the bent grass thrived. And it thrived under sterile conditions with very little water. So that's the grass of choice for a golf course. That's, that's the grass that plays the best and it is the strongest and hardiest grass. So um, we turned our program around to not manage for the 30, 40, 50% POA that was there, but to manage for the bent grass. Um, so immediately we we saw a 30% decrease in our fertilizer and pesticide budget. Our gallonage went way down on irrigation. And I just have to say, Brian Thuringer and Ben Thuringer were were uh, they went out on a limb when we when we did this program because no one was doing it really mm-hmm. and um it uh they became some of the biggest advocates and still are for what we are doing because we had a lot less um interruption to play it's a very minimally disruptive uh program because you're just slowing everything down and it and the simplicity of it is is what really sells it to superintendents because 
it just makes their job a lot easier. So it's really, rather than going ahead in time, it's probably going back 100 years in time. And and you mentioned Australia, and, and that's kind of where this program started, was at Royal Melbourne, who is you know, typically been known to have probably the finest greens in the world. Right. Uh, this is the this is the kind of program that they've been on for a very long time. Um, so within a couple of years, we went from poet bent greens to uh, pure bent grass, and it was just a remarkable transformation. Right, right from our oldest hundred year old golf course to to the classic that was you know twenty years old. So it's something I really believed in and thought I could help some golf courses out with when I retired. So that's that's a, a segment of the business that I really enjoyed. Oh, that's that's neat stuff. I love the. Uh, I don't think people realize the science behind uh, you know the agronomy and maintenance of the golf course, and it's uh, it's neat to hear your story. We sure should know the science, Scott. If we look at our own yards, like how come my yard never looks like? like Scott's yard does. <laughs> you haven't seen my yard lately. <laughs> Scott, we sure appreciate you taking the time, and we might uh, check back with you as well as the uh, season progresses. And, of course, all three of us are hoping we get a uh, good positive word from the governor before too long, and we can go all play the uh, game that we all enjoy. Yeah, let's hope so. I think we will. We'll get a threesome, and maybe maybe a fourth will play with us. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, Thanks, thank Chris. you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. That's yeah. Scott Hoffman. I appreciate Scott joining us. You're listening to Lakes, Woods, and Irons on 1380 KLIZ. Welcome back to Lakes, Woods, and Irons with Chris Foley. Colin McDonald with you, 1380 KLIZ, the fan. Find us on Facebook now at our Lakes, Woods, and Irons page, and also a Podcast One, really wherever you look for your podcast. Just look for Lakes, Woods, and Irons and uh, lakeswoodsandirons.com. Thanks to our sponsor, Mills GM, the home of affordable luxury, the 2020 Buicks. Mills GM still open for business right now, just by appointment, so give them a jingle. Chris, uh, great guests again this week. Uh, Ron Reed with some amazing stories, starting the U.S. Open from Shinnecock Hills to Pebble Beach. Golf author and uh, just one of those guys that kind of falls into that category of nice people that you meet in the world of golf. It's uh, yeah, kind of absolutely. extraordinary, really. Absolutely. You have his seat, you know, at the U.S. Open for 25-plus years. What, uh, what, a, what a great uh, experience. Yeah, made some lifelong friendships out of it and left guys alone when they wanted to be left alone. And, <laughs> uh, and also uh, Scott Hoffman, our, uh, your longtime friend, and uh, I've got the good fortune to get to know him over the last few years. And nice for Scott to join us and give us a little perspective on uh, superintendents and what's happening with minnesota golf right now with all this uh, all this mess that we're going through yeah absolutely now, you know talk about good guys in the game of golf scott is uh among the best and uh always great to get his perspective and learn from him chris so we're stuck at home so we're hoping to uh, and everybody gets a little fever over masters week even though the tournament didn't get played they played back so many great tournaments and uh all the Jim Nance talk about uh, Magnolia Lane and all those things uh, kind of gets you uh, about this time of year. We're kind of getting the fever for golf anyway when the courses, there's been years when it isn't open quite yet. So we're still kind of getting the fever. Need to get the some things uh, in shape. What can you do for us? Well, you know, it, it, I always tell people if, if you make slow, deliberate practice swings, 
you know, if you do 75 to 100 of those, uh, it's the equivalent of, of, of hitting about 300 golf balls. And you can really make a lot of, um, you know, positive changes to your golf swing, just making practice swings and not, not, uh, not even hitting golf balls. So, you know, now's a great time if you, you know, I call it shadow boxing, get in front of the mirror in your house, or if you, if you can see your reflection in a, uh, uh, like a sliding glass door and, and make those practice swings and just work on, on getting the club in, in good positions as you go back and through. And, uh, it's a great way to get ready for, uh, for getting outside in the golf season. So how slow are we going, Chris, with the, with the, with the practice swing? The slower you can go, the better. And uh, let's say your regular golf swings, you know, with the driver is 95 miles an hour. If you can do these swings at 10 miles an hour. Oh, really? So you're almost yeah. almost stopping along the way to see where yeah. you're at position-wise and that kind of thing. Exactly. Yep, yep, sure. And you can always, uh, well, some guys will chip and putt in the house when the wife's not home, but now now everybody's <laughs> home together. That's right. <laughs> Amy probably doesn't let you chip you know, in the house. We, we, uh, <laughs> we don't do a lot of chipping in the house anymore ever, ever since Joe uh, uh, hit the TV. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can't have that. No, didn't, that, didn't, that one didn't come out very well. <laughs> All right, Chris, hopefully we'll be out there before too long. Uh, some, some optimism after the governor's talk last week, and uh, maybe we'll get a little bit more of an open window this week. I think you and I both... Obviously, proponents. I had some good friends out in uh, Montana that posted a picture yesterday. Of, they were with their golf cart, and the garage door was open at the at the course they play in Libby, Montana. Beautiful little golf course, and they were prepping to play golf today. So my only note to them was, "Have your governor call our governor, please." Yeah, that's right. <laughs> with, uh, you know, with the with the right precautions, golf is a is a great way to get out and. Uh, get some exercise and, and have some fun during these trying times. Sure. I think we could, you know, sell, uh, sell your tickets to golf in this window, a burger and a beer in that window, and then head for the course. Yeah, I think uh, that's a good idea. Why don't they just put us in charge, Chris? We, we, if we were in <laughs> charge, we would be doing things a lot differently right now. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks, Chris. Great. Thank you, Mac. Good to talk to you again this week. You're listening to Lakes, Woods, and Irons on 1380 KLIZ.